Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi everyone and welcome to ODI Fridays, uh, our lunchtime lecture series. Um, today we will be talking about, or we've got the question, can we please stop talking about AI for health? We've got to, uh, Dr. Bilal Mateen from the Alan Turing Institute who will be discussing the importance of definitions, revisit a series of hard truths and share the story of the world's most complex and protracted game of 20 questions. All in an effort to highlight the importance of being able to tell the difference between good data science and a multi-million uh, dollar advertising campaign. Uh, Bilal is a clinical data science fellow at the Alan Turing Institute, a clinical academic trainee at King's College Hospital and an honorary researcher at Warwick University and the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. Um, Bilal will be speaking for about 20, 20 or so minutes. Uh, we'll then be going into a question and answer session um, there, there will be a roving mic um, and we will need you to speak into it and that's not to amplify your voice in this room but to amplify your voice for people who are watching on the live stream. Um, and for those on the live stream, please hashtag ODI Fridays uh, to ask any questions. Over to Bilal. Thank you very much. Uh, first and foremost, what I'd like to say is thank you for having me. Um, and I can honestly say that I've only aged about 10 years trying to figure out how to give this presentation without torpedoing my career. So in an effort to memorialize where I am in my life, mostly on video, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself and in the process contextualize why I'm here and why that title is in equal parts dead serious, but also tongue-in-cheek. And it's because I spend most of my day asking people about their bowel habits which is quite confusing because I'm currently employed as a psychiatrist. And for some reason, the conversation always goes back there. And I don't know if it's me or my patients. But it's what I do in my free time, which explains why I'm here. And every time I have a spare moment, I scuttle off to a little place called the Alan Turing Institute. For those of you that don't know it, the Alan Turing Institute was set up a few years ago as the UK's national centre for data science, more importantly, artificial intelligence. And so... The sobering reality of my existence, even though I have a very hard time getting away from all the hype around AI, it genuinely feels like I, I can't read an article without it being mentioned, and I can't have a conversation without someone telling me that I'm going to be replaced by a machine shortly, is that I walk into one of the most famous university hospitals in the country every day, and I sit down at a computer that had Windows 10 installed on it just about a month ago. <laughs> I'm 18 months in, and I have yet to interact with anything that is even remotely AI-based. So you can forgive me for asking, what's all the fuss about? I was taught to always start how I mean to finish, and if we're going to continue talking about the potential of artificial intelligence, then this criticism is as true today as when it was first committed to paper. So James Lighthill was commissioned by what was then called the Science Research Council 50 years ago to do a review of all the AI and robotics-based research in the UK. That's how he concluded the report. The Lighthill report is seen by many as being one of the pivotal moments in the advent of the first AI winter. Based on the findings therein, the Science Research Council stripped all but two universities of 100% of their funding for AI and robotics research. And overnight, the field came to a grinding halt as the money disappeared. And it stayed like that for about 10 years. Now, it's almost become a trope amongst those who like to commentate on the future of AI, invoking the looming spectre of another AI winter due to a lack of funds. And before anyone accuses me of being unoriginal, I don't think the next one is going to be because the money's going to dry up. The world's not going to go dry. Because the private sector and the public sector, the British government, have invested almost obscene sums of money into the field. And whilst there will inevitably be ebbs and flows, if you speak to anyone at the coalface of AI and health, or digital innovation in health, they will tell you, and they will explain to you that it's not the money that should concern you. If we're going to have another AI winter, it's going to be due to a catastrophic loss of public confidence. And let me explain why. And I'm paraphrasing two very important people in this story when I say, we all agree that AI is exciting, but I've yet to tell you what it is. And to understand where we're going, we first need to take stock of where we've come from and where we are today. And the only way I know how to do that is to take you on a very brief walk through the history of artificial intelligence. And given how much time I have, 
and how complicated this field is, the easy way for me to do that is to show you how the definition of AI has changed over time. And our story begins with this man. Given the way that some people talk about artificial intelligence, you'd think the field had only been around for five or ten years. And admittedly, the computational capabilities that have allowed us to unleash most of its potential has only been around for that long. The field itself is much older. It's about 70 years older. And it begins with this man, John McCarthy, and several of his colleagues writing a proposal to hold a three-week-long conference at Dartmouth. And in that proposal, they wrote down what they wanted to talk about. Believe it or not, that's the first time the term artificial intelligence was used. And they went so far as to give us a definition. And that definition went a little bit like this. It's the science of making machines do things that if it was done by humans, would require intelligence. And I don't know about you, but as definitions go, that one feels deeply unsatisfying. It verges on a degree of circularity that renders it almost meaningless. And so I don't think that that's a criticism of the contributors to the Dartmouth conference. Instead, I think it's a recognition of the fact that even they didn't think we'd be using that definition for very long. Lo and behold, immediately after they left, each of them made fundamental contributions to improving that definition and iteratively improving on their colleagues' contributions. And so, I want to take a brief detour and instead jump 50 years into the future before I continue our brief journey through the history of AI. It's almost, with the benefit of history and hindsight, become a sport amongst my colleagues and myself to point out examples of where intelligent machines have made incredibly poor decisions. And the example that I find people most intuitively understand is from a conversation you could have had with Siri in 2012. If you had told Siri, Siri, I'm gonna jump off a train, I'm gonna jump off a bridge, Siri would have responded, Hi Bilal, there are three bridges nearby. The closest one is one and a half miles away. Would you like me to show you how to get there using Apple Maps? Yeah, Apple Maps, remember that? There's also the part where Siri just facilitated suicide. A response to that question that even your average four-year-old would know is not the right one to give. So, that segues me beautifully back into one of the major contributions of the late 20th century, that picture means absolutely nothing. It's just what comes up when you Google AI. <laughs> that distinction that came about in the late 20th century is the formalization of the difference between artificial narrow intelligence and artificial general intelligence. What you've just seen with Siri is a beautiful example of artificial narrow intelligence. It's an attempt to replicate or mimic a specific series of either human functions, abilities, or actions. And the reason they're so brittle is because they use a set of information to generalize a series of rules with which they use to respond to new data and new information. Now, what we do far too often, but we never teach these models, is that we change the rules. And if Siri had told you how to get anywhere else, you'd have nodded and said thank you. But the fact that she told you how to get to the bridge, that's a disaster. That's narrow intelligence. General intelligence is something entirely different. It's an attempt to create something that has the cognitive capabilities and the experiential understanding of our environment such that it can do any task, that it can answer any question. When you think of general intelligence, what I want to come to mind is HAL 9000 from A Space Odyssey or Skynet from Terminator. Just minus the malevolence, because we don't think that's implicit <laughs> or guaranteed. And Whilst that was one of the fundamental contributions of the late 20th century, and the reason why I've chosen it is because it's incredibly important to how we talk about AI in health, because 99 times out of 100 when someone says AI in an applied field like health, they mean narrow intelligence, not general intelligence. There are about a dozen more fundamental contributions that if you gave me a seminar series in three months, I would not have time to cover. If I started now, I would not be able to name all the people who played a pivotal role in this field before I had to finish. So instead, I'm not even gonna try. I'm gonna skip over it, and I'm gonna tell you where it was all going. And it was this definition. Stuart Russell, Peter Norvig, still around. One of them works for Google. And this is the definition that first came up in their book published in 1991. This comes from the 2003 edition. And for the benefit of those that can't see the screen for some reason or another, I'm gonna take the time to read it out to you. So 
they said that artificial intelligence is the study of agents that receive percepts from the environment and perform actions. Each such agent implements a function that maps percept sequences to actions, and in their book, they cover all the different ways to represent these functions within all the subfields of artificial intelligence. And I hope for you, as it was for me, that seeing this definition and comparing it to that of the original Dartmouth proposal is that as stark as that of night and day. Because I would go so far as to argue that this is a work of beauty. It is elegantly simple, and yet it says everything it needs to. You as the reader can bring to it whatever you know about AI, and it holds strong. And that's what a definition is meant to do. It's meant to make its subject matter both explicit and accessible. It's meant to provide us with the framework, the vocabulary with which to engage with the relevant ideas. And yet I'm a man in his mid-twenties who's just spent the last 10 minutes harping on about definitions. So why does it matter? And it's because of this. About a month ago, NHSX, the arm's length body that was set up to shepherd us and the NHS into our digital future, released this report. Artificial Intelligence, How to Get It Right. It's a bold title. And the morning after this report was released, I woke up to about half a dozen emails from four different countries, all from friends reminding me to take my blood pressure medication before I read it. Why? Because when you open it up on the first page of substantive content, they give you three definitions. And I saw that and I went, finally. Finally, a piece of policy work that gets it. Because if we don't mark the battle lines, if we don't make clear what we're talking about, we can't have a sensible conversation. I celebrated too early. <laughs> because then I read it. And the first definition they give you is that of Russell and Norvig, the one we just saw. The second one is from Marvin Minsky. He's one of the many people I didn't have time to talk about. He was there at the Dartmouth conference. He made fundamental contributions. But he's just not important right now. <laughs> because the third definition they, they give you is from the Dartmouth proposal. And they conclude with that statement at the top. They say that that third definition is the most applicable to the uses of artificial intelligence in health and social care. And my response to that in a word, nonsense. Two words, absolute nonsense. And the reason I say that is because not even the authors of that original definition were using it as they proposed. John McCarthy, the man we just met, was still working up until the late 2000s, trying to grapple with this field and giving it a reasonable definition. He unfortunately passed away in 2011. Even he wasn't using his own definition like they'd want us to. And yet I still haven't answered the question. Why do I care so much about definitions? And it's because I see this issue as being a symptom of a much larger problem. At least in health, we have failed to learn from the past. We have failed to learn from our failures, and either by accident or entirely on purpose, we have perpetuated this belief that artificial intelligence is the solution to all problems everywhere. And I'm going to give you just two examples from an ever-growing toolbox, <laughs> an arsenal of them, which demonstrates just how flawed this premise is. And this is the first one. I thought I'd make it through, through the entire lecture without having to show you one figure. But if I was going to show you just one, this is it. And it comes from a systematic review published a few months ago. The authors of that review sat down and they collected up all the papers in the health field that they could find that compared a logistic regression to an artificial intelligence or machine learning based tool for predicting a healthcare specific outcome. And once they'd found all those papers, they did something incredibly important. They, sit, they sat down and they sifted through them, looking for evidence of bias. Examples like the logistic regression being given different features to predict the outcome than that of the artificial intelligence or the machine learning based algorithm. Or where the validation framework was so inscrutable that it was impossible to tell that the two had been treated fairly. Quite reasonable quality indicators, I'm sure you'll agree. And when they plotted the difference between the predictive performance of the logistic regression and all those examples of artificial intelligence based tools, in the studies that had low evidence of bias, they found that there was entirely no difference. Now, I have no idea what's going on in the high bias group. Okay, I'm not even going to try and grapple with that. But I think what they're trying to show us, or they were trying to tell us with this example, 
is that to start from this assumption that artificial intelligence is going to be the basis of the best tool or solution you can create, which happens far too often, is not only disingenuous, but it's factually incorrect. But it can be hard to see how something like this, which is incredibly abstract, maps to the real world. So let's move on to my second example. The first widespread use of artificial intelligence for health was in breast cancer. In 1998, the FDA approved the world's first computer-aided detection program for breast cancer screening. And within 10 years, more than three quarters of all mammograms screened as part of the US Medicare program were done using CAD-based technology. We're more than 20 years on, and we're still using CAD. So what do you think we've learned from the experience? Well, and again, I'm going to quote here from one of the single largest studies we have on the topic, published in JAMA in 2015. They looked at the US screening database, found 600,000 mammograms with outcomes to look at, 450,000 of which had used CAD, 150,000 that hadn't. And I believe the quote from their paper goes, CAD does not improve the accuracy of mammography and may result in missed cancers. In essence, insurers are paying more for computer-aided detection with no discernible benefit to women. It took us 20 years to get there. If you were switched on, there were two papers, two meta-analyses that came out of Europe in 2007 and 2008 that said something pretty similar. CAD increases false positive rates, costs more, no benefit to women. It took us 10 years to get there. And yet people ask me, what do you mean when you say we haven't learned from history, Bilal? What examples do you have? And it's at this point, it's at exactly this point in any conversation that one of my colleagues will chime up and say, oh, Bilal, you've misunderstood. The problem here isn't the technology. It's the fact that we had a physician, a human in the loop, because someone had to interpret the outputs of that tool and make a decision. We can have fully autonomous diagnostic systems now. We don't need humans. Take a picture, process it, get an outcome. Let's take doctors completely out of the equation. They're the ones that introduce the error. And this isn't some example of where we might be in the future. This is where we are today. There is already a fully autonomous system for breast cancer diagnosis in the US that's received FDA approval. There's one in Europe that's received the equivalent, a CE mark. And what worries me is the regulatory frameworks we have in place right now mean that it could be another 20 years before we find out if either of those tools is helping or harming women. I think the unfortunate and inconvenient truth is that we've lost our way. We've allowed other people to convince us that it's the potential of artificial intelligence that matters. It's the chance to do something truly groundbreaking, and instead we've forgotten why we got into this, or at least why I got into this, which is I wanted the ability to affect change. I wanted to be able to save lives, or at least improve them. And I do not say this in some sort of vapid attempt to make you feel warm inside. I'm a deeply selfish and cynical little man who knows he's going to die young, probably of cardiovascular disease. <laughs> and so when I'm lying in that bed, I want to be damn well sure that the algorithm that is sifting through my information to decide whether I get drug A or drug B says one of three things. By using the drug it recommends, either I'm going to live longer, either I'm going to live better, or it's now so cheap to treat me that you can treat a thousand other people like me and we all have the same outcome. And if you don't hit one of those three hurdles, I'm good. Thank you very much. And it's important to use that as the endpoint for how you discuss these things. Because the regulatory frameworks that currently exist don't ask those questions for you. And to assume that they do is foolhardy. So if you're not going to advocate for yourselves, just know that no one else will. And the reason I say that, and the example I will use to prove to you that this is not nonsense, is the FDA in the UK, in the US, not the UK. 80% of all medical devices that receive FDA approval go through a program called the 510K program. Something so flawed that the Institute of Medicine, when they reviewed it over 35 years, and when they published that review in 2011, said that the FDA would have been better off scrapping it root and stem and not investing another dime into trying to fix it. Nine years on, we still have it. And what does that mean for artificial intelligence? 
Well, it's one quarter of those tools that I want to focus on because they get to market through a very specific stipulation called equivalence or predication. And what that means is to get your product to market, what you need to do is show that it is either equivalent to something that was approved within the last 10 years or to that of standard operating procedure. That's how the breast cancer computer aided diagnostic tools made it to market. They showed that they were better than breast cancer screening radiologists. And it took us 20 years to figure out that that means nothing. Piers Keane, a Moorfields ophthalmologist, stood right here three weeks ago. He works with Google, Google Health. And in a paper he wrote last year with Eric Topple, a name that might be familiar to some of you, they gave the game away. They told us what we needed to do to prevent that happening. And what that is, is prospective trials. And this is the important bit, with patient-centered outcomes that demonstrate clinical utility. And here's the little bit that I'm going to tack on at the end. Because if we don't get those trials, we're going to kill someone. I'm going to tell you that right now. And the only people we'll have to blame is ourselves. I found that no good argument is complete without an example. And so the last little story I'm going to tell you is from the early days when I was in medical school. I used to work in an MS lab. And every day that summer, I would climb to the second story of that building and I would enter the corridor the lab was on. And as I walked down to the office that I worked in, on my right-hand side, there was a door with an XKCD poster on it. And that poster went something like this. It's seared into my memory. Every time you read a claim that a drug or a common vitamin can kill cancer in a Petri dish, just remember, so can a handgun. At that point, most people know where I'm going with this, but I want to take it the full nine yards. Because believe it or not, a well-aimed bullet will reduce the size of a solid tumour, which is one of the outcomes that we use in oncology. And yet when I talk to my colleagues in oncology, for some reason, despite that flawless argument, they cannot get their heads around why a handgun isn't a reasonable alternative to chemotherapy. They keep going on about mortality rates or something. And yet for some reason, when we talk about artificial intelligence, when we talk about technology in health, we seem to be willing to accept that a smaller tumor is enough. And it's absolutely bizarre to me why we, in our profession, are willing to accept that as the hurdle that you need to get over. I thought long and hard about how I was going to close up the first part of this session. And I recognize it's unfair for me to arrive here on a Friday afternoon during your lunchtime with my wheelbarrow full of doom and gloom, <laughs> leave it at your doorsteps and walk away patting myself on the back thinking, oh, but you've done a job, you've done a good job here. So instead, I will leave you with a glimmer of hope because there is light at the end of this tunnel. Eric Topple recently delivered his report on how we can shepherd our NHS's workforce into the digital future to the government. And in that report, there is one very important recommendation, and that's that every single member of our workforce is capable of critically appraising and interpreting artificial intelligence and robotics technologies. That is a lofty aim. Fortunately for us, there are brilliant charities like Sense About Science that have been working at the coalface of public and professional engagement for well over a decade. They make this stuff look easy. And if you do nothing else, take five minutes to look at their guide to data science that was published this year. And if you get nothing from it, I suspect at the very least you will have found a tool to add to your arsenal to explain the nuances of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And no academic lecture or presentation is complete without some shameless self-promotion. So earlier this year, a colleague and I decided that it wasn't it just wasn't okay that academics aren't allowed to have fun. So we took two months out to find Santa. We didn't, but along the way, we may or may not have learned something about the generalization limits of models. And if you'd like to find out more, that paper just came out in significance. And we're going to publish another half dozen of those. So anyone that would like to come with us on that mad journey, come find me afterwards. You're more than welcome. I knew full well coming into this that I would never convince any of you to stop talking about AI. And I can see a couple of familiar faces in the room who will already know this. But my deep, dark secret is that I hope you never do. I hope that we can find a way to enthuse more people 
into talking about it. But what desperately needs to change is how we talk about it. We need to elevate the discourse, and that requires three things to change. The first is that we need to make clear what we're talking about, and that can be as simple as a definition. Two, we need to own our failures, and we need to learn from the past, because breast cancer screening, computer detection, isn't going anywhere, it seems. And I suspect we're only likely to collect more examples as time passes. Third, we need to make a concerted effort to ensure that the public and our professional colleagues understand enough about the methods that we are using and the tools that we are creating such that they can hold our feet to the fire. Because we need to remain accountable to someone. And if it's not going to be the regulators, it might as well be all of you. If we continue down the path that we're currently on, we will continue to put at risk the trust that our patients put in us, and we will jeopardize the goodwill of the public. And the longer we continue down this path, the more likely we are to come to a day when we lose that trust and we have squandered that goodwill. And on that day, it will not matter what the potential of AI is and all the opportunities that lay before us will have been for naught. And so what I'll leave you with is this. The decision of which path we choose is up to each and every one of you individually because it's as simple as how you choose to talk about AI next time the conversation comes up. And it will not be easy to make that decision to be sensible. But if you take away nothing else, I would like you to remember this one Robert Frost quote. And it goes a little bit like this. Two paths diverged in the woods, and I, I took the one less travelled by, and that, that has made all the difference. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Bilal. Um, we're going to go into questions now. So does anyone have a burning immediate question that they have? Yes. Thanks. Oh, Thank I'm you so back. much. That was, uh, back. <laughs> that was fascinating. Thank you. Um, so uh, I heard something about uh, the need to simplify things to the point where we can be held accountable uh, for, for what we're creating here. And what does that imply for, for any machine learning <clears throat> intelligence? Because isn't there a, sort of naturally a, a black box? I'm going to pick you up on a specific word you use there, and then I'll answer your question. <laughs> I don't think we need to simplify things as much as people have been going on about. I think that for some weird reason, the, the more senior you get as an academic, um, you adopt this position that the, the layman or your professional colleagues, and I use professional colleagues a lot because there are people in government who are making decisions to commission these products day in, day out, that have the capacity to understand what you're doing. Um, so I don't think we need to simplify it, but to what your point actually sounded like it was about, which is the fact that there's this black box, and we may not be able to explain everything. Is that right? Okay, and I, I'll give you two answers to that. I want to take you back to that systematic review that showed that a logistic regression can, in some circumstances, be just as good if treated equally as an artificial intelligence or machine learning-based tool. And there are loads of things being done at the forefront of explainability and interpretability that are allowing us to claw back some of that ability to explain why we've arrived at a specific decision. I don't think it's impossible, and I think it's a conversation we need to keep having. The issue that I'm coming across far too often is that we just don't seem to care enough about explaining it to everyone else, and we seem perfectly happy to let people read our papers and just assume that they get it. Does that answer your question? Thank you. No problems. Hi. Uh, that Hi. was actually quite a, quite a really thought-provoking um, conversation. So you're telling me I I'm not going to get fired. Two... <laughs> <laughs> I've got two questions. Yes. So... So I'm a product manager, worked in AI for the last three years, mm. but on the commercial side, not on the very medical side. Yeah. So in which means I'm allowed to make mistakes, right? Uh, and okay. kind of, <laughs> so it's statistical, AI is statistical. Yeah. So we tend to have false positives and false negatives, we try to minimize it. Mm. So you have validation at different levels yes. before you present the data to the endpoint. Yeah. Now, in the world I work, yeah. When it goes wrong, yeah. the end user says it is wrong. Yeah. It's quite comparatively less. 
so we can accept it. Okay. We say, yes, we'll do it better next time. Yeah. In the field of medicine, mm. it's totally not acceptable. Entirely not. <laughs> so from the practitioner point of view, yeah. how do you, I can understand you want to extend the clinical trials and make it very much stable and to get it to the point of accuracy. Yeah. What else can be done from the practitioner point of view? That's my first question. Ooh, okay. Second question yeah. <laughs> is, um, so the concept of academic to the practitioner yes. is you publish a papers, then you just validate it and go into practice. Yeah. In US, it's mm. the other way around, where you apply a lot of concept and they derive a paper out of it. Yeah. So in, in the AI world, if you look at it, mostly after gone through several cycles of all the algorithms that's been established so far. Yeah. A lot is now more, more towards practicing towards paper. Okay. Are we in the cycle of determining which is the best one with, in that course of um, conversation within, is the academic papers are validated more than applied AI? Okay. I think I understand the first question. I may or may not have understood the second. So I'm going to start on what I think is steady ground and say, thanks for asking me how I would solve the problem that no one else has been able to. Uh, it's, it's a privilege to be able to answer that. <laughs> and so I will instead refer to people much smarter than myself and say that it comes down to things like what Eric Topol said in his review, or at least his commission came back with, which is that we need to make sure that people understand what we're talking about so that they can make an informed decision. I appreciate we will always have this kind of battle between commercialization of these products and ensuring that they are safe. And there will be a point at which we need to let people out of the bubble and into the real world. And there will be a risk that we need to accept comes along with that. What I find entirely inadequate is the fact that currently we don't understand what that risk is <laughs> at all. Uh, because the 30 products that have been approved by the FDA, all of those that fell under the 510k program have gotten through based on demonstrating equivalence, diagnostic accuracy. You've read the headlines. It's AI is 99% accurate and better than 100 of the world's doctors. That means nothing. And what I need to be able to practice safely in this domain is for all the patients coming through my door to understand that that headline means nothing. Because they're asking me why I'm not using that product. And I think that's a dangerous world that we're setting up. That's my answer to the first question. If I've understood the second question, it's somewhat similar. It's this question of, do we care as much about the papers or do we care about finding out what happens in real life? And I think there is a happy middle. Um, we've got a well-established mechanism from pharmaceutical trials. I think that you can start opening up these products to use in controlled environments such that we can figure out what their clinical utility is. Um, but again, it comes back to people making an informed decision. If you sign up for that trial, you understand what the risk-benefit is. Um, and you contribute to this process of real-world experiential learning. But I need you to know what you're doing. And currently, I don't know if it's just me, but I really feel like no one gets it, because half the time I don't. <laughs> yeah. Back in the light, guys. <laughs> Anyone else? Oh, we've got one over there. Just coming over to you. Um, thanks very much for, for this talk. Actually, very, very, very interesting. I'm just wondering what you might have to say about, uh, given what you started with and, and talking about the, you know, the next AI winter would, would most likely be due to a loss of public confidence. Yeah. I want to tease apart a little bit uh, questions about trust sure. in, in, in AI. Yeah. And to perhaps do that by way of some of the uh, other examples in, in healthcare, uh, mm. you know, forms of, of technology treatment that perhaps we don't, we, we can't fully explain. We understand sort of how to use them, but we can't yeah. exactly explain how they work. Mm -hmm. And to ask if we think that problems or issues that relate to trust in AI mm -hmm. are fundamentally different from, the, um, from questions of trust in, in, in use of these other uh, uh, technologies in, in healthcare, or, or if it's just because it's new and we haven't yet drawn the comparison. Um, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Uh, it's because it's new and we haven't drawn the comparison. These trust issues aren't any different. They're just presenting themselves with slightly different scientific techno uh, vocabulary. Um, and that's why we're ignoring all the lessons we could learn from our past failures in other fields. And again, I don't know why. It's bizarre to me. Um, but if you look, and a lot of the people who wrote that paper, the, the systematic review, have said this multiple times. 
there was a brilliant health technology assessment that came out that looked at predictive modeling and they created this brilliant tool to triage every patient in Wales. It's called, it's the Snokes paper, uh, it's the prismatic trial. And they ran a cluster randomized step wedged control trial, um, giving GPs this ability to figure out who on their list was at a high risk of being admitted within the next 12 months so they could try and do something about it. And what they found was that this tool increases costs and again, has no direct benefit to the patient. That was published two years ago. It didn't use machine learning, it used standard predictive modeling techniques. And yet if you talk to most people in the field of AI, they've never heard of it. Um, and I find that quite worrying. And so I think you answered your own question. Yes, there is a lot of overlap. Yes, there is a lot we can learn. And no, these issues of trust are not new. Um, given the privileged position we're in as medics, most of the conversations we have end up coming back to a question of trust. And yet we seem blinded um, by this magical thing that is artificial intelligence and all its potential. Just bring this over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, building on this, this trust thing um, and past failures, do you see it feasibly happen in the future that, similar to uh, anti-vaccine groups who will have anti-AI people? Oh, well, yeah, I don't even think you need to wait for the future. Just open up Elon Musk's Twitter page. <laughs> um, it's happening, and I think that's what, again, you're right, it's an issue of trust. We are quickly losing people because we are not doing enough to explain to them what's going on. And so if they, like me, um, have Google on their back, having figured out that they have a very particular lean, um, they're going to continue to live in that bubble and they're going to get reinforcement and all they're ever going to see is the examples of AI messing up. And there are 101 examples, if you look deep enough, of AI actually being quite useful. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not a skeptic. I work for a group <laughs> that's the National Institute for Artificial Intelligence. I've obviously bought into it. Um, but yeah, I've forgotten where I was going with this. Did that answer the question? Yes. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I'm going to take the small victory there. <laughs> Anyone else? I have a question around... Go on. Um, are there any case studies or examples of where you've had organisations or companies backtrack when it comes to implementing AI within, within health or related fields because Ooh. of things that you've described? Or is it too early for that to be happening? It's definitely not too early. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them could if they wanted to. Um, I think it comes back to that issue of commercialization. Once they've committed, they're throwing genuinely million dollar, billion dollar sums at these topics. Um, and they seem far more interested in kind of papering up the cracks than mm. trying to root and stem, correct the mistakes they've made. And I, do I have a minute? I can give you an example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So everyone familiar with Watson? Watson won Jeopardy in 2011, made by IBM. Um, there goes my career with IBM. Um, Watson, after that victory, they then went off into a whole different, a whole set of different subspecialties with Watson, and they went for, they went into health, and they created something called Watson for Oncology in partnership with the Memorial Sloan Kettering Center in the U.S., which is one of the major oncological centers in the world. Um, and the point was they were trying to create something called an expert system. It's a subfield of AI where you are trying to create a machine that is able to provide you with that expert level human knowledge, trying to encode that in the machine such that you can pick it up, drop it anywhere in the world, and when you feed it the information about the patient that you have in front of you, the advice you'll get on how to manage that patient is as good as having a Memorial Sloan Kettering oncologist excuse me, next to you. Now, in 2015, they published an abstract at the American Society for something oncology, um, ASCO, 2015. And in that abstract, they said something absolutely phenomenal. Um, so they always look at the concordance, the amount of times that Watson for Oncology agrees with the physician. And in this particular abstract, they use the Memorial Sloan Kettering Oncologist as the exemplar. So you're right if you're the physician, and whatever Watson for Oncology says, we're trying to figure out how often it agrees. And there was a specific subset of cases where what the physician offered is the best management for that patient. Watson for Oncology didn't just suggest something else, it actually said that was the worst thing you could do for the patient. And so they looked a little bit closer at all those cases where there was that major discrepancy. And what they found was those were all the cases um, where Watson for Oncology had never seen that particular type of person. 
and it always came back to an elderly person with a specific type of comorbidity. Watson for Oncology had just never seen a subset of the population, <laughs> and so when it guessed, it made a terrible decision. That was in 2015. There have been about half a dozen, if not a dozen more validation papers, and you just see the same thing over and over and over and over again, and they're selling Watson for Oncology, and people in less developed nations are using Watson for Oncology. IBM has the money to roll this back, but they haven't. Thank you. Um, just following on from that point, maybe, um, yeah. so there's kind of justifiably quite a lot of concern around how data-driven technology and artificial intelligence might serve to exacerbate health inequalities. Mm. And I wonder what you think could be done to try and make sure that um, artificial intelligence and that sort of tech actually addresses it rather than makes it worse. So in the making it worse sense, I entirely agree much of the information we have is hugely biased, and if we build a machine from it, it's going to encode our biases. Uh, those of you who want some fun bedtime reading, um, the Compass tool, recidivism rates in the US, type it into Google, have a read. ProPublica's comments on it, quite fascinating. Um, in terms of actually addressing that issue, I think that IBM, we're kind of on to something. <laughs> I hate to say this. The way that we're going to tackle those inequalities is by taking the phenomenal expertise that exists encoding them in machines and assuming they work, taking them to places where their specialties would never have gone. We can't take the experts from Memorial Sloan Kettering and clone them yet and take them everywhere, but we can potentially put them in a machine and take that to, like they've been doing very recently, somewhere in India that just doesn't have the money to pay for that many or that calibre of oncologists. Ooh. Thank you for that, Bilal. Um, so, building on about the questions around data and explainability, <coughs> given that many people don't understand GDPR, don't don't really understand how their data is actually used, yeah. how how are we to expect patients to give consent for their data to be used as part of these models if they don't know? Yeah, if, if they don't understand how their, 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 their data is used already now, yeah. health data is that much more sensitive, that much more nuanced, and it seems like it's a different hurdle. Yeah. So how would we possibly get past that one? Okay, three things. Firstly, you can't use my name, otherwise they'll know that I know you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, secondly, I don't understand GDPR, so my answer to this is going to be very limited. And third, my answer to that question is, you're entirely right. People don't understand how their data is used. I don't think most people understand what the implications of GDPR are, especially for predictive tools that have more of the black box lean, um, because people are now entitled to an explanation. I don't know how to unravel this mess, but I think it comes back to attempting to explain it to everyone, because I'm paid to show up and care, and yet... I barely understand what's going on. I don't think it's fair to expect people going about their lives um, who only ever interact with the health service when they need help or, in most other situations, when they're interacting to buy something or use a service uh, to just magically understand what most people don't. But I understand that was kind of a fluffy answer. <laughs> you, you're meant to be a plant. It's meant to be easy, Shaquille. <laughs> Question from Twitter. Go on. Uh, <laughs> do you have a way to explain why the diagnostic accuracy metric is unhelpful? Mm -hmm. I'm a qualitative research specialist and yeah. we're encouraged to suggest metrics. So keen to understand what a better <coughs> one would be. So I think this comes back to, and I only said it in a sentence, so I, I don't blame you. Um, it comes to a patient-centred outcome. What we need is something with a slightly longer horizon are people's quality of life indicators better because you use that tool two years, three years, five years down the line? Are more people surviving because you diagnose something correctly? People use this example in genetics a lot, um, and I think that's an, an easy way to get your head around it. Just because I diagnosed a genetic condition the moment you were born, if I can't do anything about it, well, you've still got the genetic condition, right? I, I just know now. And there's no reason... Admittedly, it is quite intuitive. If we diagnose more people accurately, you'd think we'd be able to do something about it. Um, but if the system can't accommodate, you could be sitting on that diagnosis for six months, 18 months. 
the question that I need answered is when I use this tool on day one, yes, you're absolutely right. The first qualitative marker that I need is that you are indeed more accurate. Because if you're not, <laughs> there's no point showing up to the party. But once you've gotten over that first hurdle, it does being more accurate more often actually help someone. And I keep coming back to the breast cancer example because that's what kind of opened up my eyes to this, is that just assuming that being more accurate is going to lead to better outcomes doesn't always hold. Cool. I had a question around um, debates when it comes to, have, or have there been any debates around clinicians taking the Hippocratic Oath and, and um, yeah. then there being negative, using, using AI that creates you know, negative outcomes and the tensions around that? I mean, are there, are there any... Ooh. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. <laughs> um, most of us don't actually take the Hippocratic Oath. There's okay. a fun fact. Uh, graduated from university. No one ever mentioned it to me. Okay. Um, some universities in the UK still do. I know they have white coat ceremonies in the US. Um, we, we tend to, I know there's someone from the GMC in the audience, <laughs> tend to follow their guidance on the, <laughs> on the subject. Um, and it's about trying to do the best for your patient. I, then, I think it's a question of, and it's why I tack in professional engagement every time I mention public engagement. It's not just about the classic layperson. Mm -hmm. I think most of my colleagues, uh, when I enter the hospital, don't know what's going on, don't particularly care. Mm. Um, and so they are going to need to learn just as much as everyone else, just as much as me, to be able to make sensible decisions. So I suspect in a few years, yes, there might be an issue. <laughs> <laughs> There's been one, yeah. yeah, there you go. I think so. <laughs> um, hey, idea. Anyone interested? <laughs> <laughs> Are there any more questions? Any final questions for Bilal? Ooh, one more. Yes, let's go for it. But just one this time. I can't <laughs> hold two questions in my head. <laughs> so my question goes back to the first one again. Yeah. With respect to feedback. Yeah. So you didn't mention... So I would take an example of Google Translation. Mm. Google Translation used to be really bad early 2000. Mm -hmm. Now, comparatively, I'm not saying it's good now, comparatively, yeah. it improved a lot. Mm -hmm. Because over the period of time, computation data made it actually algorithm made it more closer to accuracy. Yeah. So if you take that as a, as a kind of an example in the medical world, mm -hmm. the more you kind of know the feedback that yeah. it's not right, the more you can improve. But if there are hurdles that you don't want to go in and put it in front of the patient and mm -hmm. there's no feedback. Yeah. There's not going to be an improvement. Yeah. So, you know, what is the perspective in how, how this can be tackled? So in all fairness to Apple, Siri did the same thing. It's why I said it's a conversation you can only have had in 2012, because by 2013, everyone had figured out it was the front page of all sorts of tech magazines, and they fixed it. And you're right. The feedback mechanism is important. It's how we're going to improve these tools. But as with any clinical trial, with anything that's not AI-based, so technology or a drug, we know what the risks are, and we tell the patients the risks when we see them. And that's how we can send them into this process. So there are risks to everything. And feedback is important in how we medically manage most conditions. The way we treat heart attacks is very different now. <laughs> we made a lot of mistakes over the last three, four decades. And that's what we do today reflects that. I am perfectly happy with the concept of feedback playing an important role in improving the uses of artificial intelligence for health. What I'm unhappy about is that we don't understand those risks. And that's what I'm going to keep going back to. <laughs> because as simple as, someone please just run a trial. You have the money. If you had the money to throw at hiring 30 engineers to build an unnecessarily complex convolutional neural net to do something no one needed you to do, because I'm sure we could have just all Googled how to get to the restaurant we want to go to, surely you could pay for the clinical trial. Surely that matters more. And if it doesn't, please sit down and reflect on why it doesn't. <laughs> because I think the problem there is with you, not me. Great. Any final questions for Bilal? Thank you. Hi, I really enjoyed your talk. Thank you. Well, coming back to patient outcomes, yes. it looks like you kind of um, recenter the conversation on what's actually important and whether AI is even well, I wouldn't go that far. I've tried. Oh, I, I think, well, I, I think it's a very well um, kind of welcome argument. So, in that in that perspective, do you think there is um, any other problems or questions we should be raising about patient outcomes when it comes to kind of at the policy level? One of the things interesting I 
article I read about was around price and transparency, the cap on kind of supply of doctors mm. in, in kind of countries. So thinking about patient outcomes, is there anything else we could be talking about um, beyond, you know, just AI. tools? Um, yeah, I guess. Oh, Jesus, again. Um, yeah, everything. Um, or what is more important, I guess, in terms of if you had to, like, prioritize in terms of policy? Or, um, Ooh, this feels hugely political, but you know what? Um, I'm going to take a chance because I suspect that I haven't tanked my career just yet, so let me have another go at it. Um, <laughs> I think stuff that's more important um, is making sure that the hospitals are adequately staffed. I don't think this is at all contentious, given that everyone agrees we need more people. Um, and to be able to have a conversation about AI probably requires us to deal with those immediate issues first. Equally, there will be people who will argue that these tools have a role in potentially alleviating some of that burden. And fantastic if they can. Um, please do show me how that works. But yeah, like I think the more pressing need is how do we deal with the operational difficulties on the ground? Um, how do we deal it? Well, now I have the platform, I will use it. How do we deal with burnout amongst doctors? That is a real problem. Because um, a lot of your doctors are very, very sad and having a difficult time doing their jobs. Um, and that's why a lot of them leave the profession. There are emergent needs, uh, Im sorry, imminent needs that need to be addressed. I, I don't know what they are. I'm probably woefully uninformed about most of them. But those are the two that I kind of pick up on. Is that reasonable? That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. What about, hang on, just let me bring you the mic. I just want to know what you think about the time-saving aspect of AI, because mm. it, as long as AI is <coughs> as accurate as a human, yes. <laughs> that's okay, yes. but then it's going to save time. So in the long run, is that not better for the NHS? It is absolutely better, and it's why it's number three on my list of hurdles for what you need to prove to me to use your algorithm. Either I live longer, I live better, or you can treat more people. Yep. Yeah. So time is incredibly important, but I will say this. Read Eric Topol's review of AI... Uh, that was published, I believe, earlier this year, Nature Medicine. And in it, there's a little line that I really liked, which was they did a simulated randomized control trial using this tool that can diagnose whether someone's had a bleed on the brain. And it does it in about two seconds, I think. So there's significant time saved. But it's also significantly less accurate. So until you can show me that the tool doesn't do worse and does save time, yeah. no. But when you can, yeah, <laughs> great, which is why it comes back to that. It could be a huge time saver, but I'm waiting for the evidence. And that's why I think that as much as people love to talk about how AI is going to change the world in one to five years, you're going to have to work a little bit harder to convince me that that's actually the timeline we're talking about. Because Sir James Lighthill was writing that report 50 years ago, having 20 years of AI under his belt. What's changed? Thank you. If you can all join me in thanking Bilal for a brilliant talk. You've been listening to the Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.